Glad to be back with you. Uh, we are looking at the encounters of Jesus uh, in the book of Luke. And I think what you've seen is that there's all different kinds of people that Jesus is willing to interact with. And all these different kinds of people he interacts with in different ways. And so today we see Jesus deal with the disciples when they're in the midst of doubt and they're in the midst of suffering. Uh, so let's pray that God would help us see it. Oh, Father, uh, we, for many of us, we're looking at a uh, familiar text. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, show us beautiful things in your word. Lord, that we, we do indeed uh, have our mouths open. And we ask that you feed us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Luke 8, uh, verse 22. And we'll read just four verses today. One day... He, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke, rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that, command, that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. The word of the Lord. Uh, starting in the 1800s, a movement swept across uh, really all scholarship that still affects us today. And it's called text criticism. It's a process where any ancient literature is evaluated in order to, to, to find out what its historical validity is. And so when you put text criticism on the Bible, what many people do is they draw the conclusion that the Bible is a stuff of myth or even legend because it has miraculous content, content like we just read about. A New Testament scholar at Cambridge, his name's Richard Bauckham, he wrote a book. It's called Jesus and Eyewitnesses. And in this book, he outlines how there were numerous well-known living eyewitnesses to Jesus' teaching and to his life who were still living at the time the Gospels were written. And what Bauckham says, if that's the case, if there were these living witnesses to Jesus' life and to his teaching, that they would be able to debunk or contradict accounts that would be highly fictionalized. And because this was the reality, he makes a conclusion that the Gospels can be trusted to be historically valid because they were written so close to the time of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And maybe that's why you have a hard time accepting the account that we just read. But maybe you have a hard time reading the account we just read because... Miracles are just hard for you. You believe that science proven, has proven that there's no such thing as miracles. And that's understandable. We do live in a culture that's highly rational. And that's a good thing. The Bible doesn't ask you to check your brain at the door when you walk into church. But what I would challenge you to do is that you would see that there's faith implicit in your statement. If you say science has proven there is no such thing as miracles, that is a leap of faith. Tim Keller in Reason for God, he writes this, It's one thing to say that science is equipped to test for natural causes and cannot speak to any others. 
It's quite another thing to insist that science proves that no other causes could possibly exist. See, in other words, Christianity asserts that our world is natural and science is a wonderful tool to mine a world created by God. But not all things lie within this beautiful and important realm that we call the natural. There's also the supernatural, and that's what our text is all about today. So if accepting the supernatural as plausible is hard for you, then I just ask you to question your faith and reason alone. I ask you to see your 21st century bias against the realm of miracles and consider the miracle in our text. But before we get to the miracle that we see in verses 24 and 25, there's a couple things that are really hard to swallow in verses 22 and 23. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 tells us that the disciples end up in a storm because Jesus tells them to go out on a lake where a storm is going to nearly capsize their boat. Jesus knew that they were headed into stormy weather and he didn't stop them. Verse 23, I want you to see the thing that's hard to swallow there. Verse 23 you find the disciples in there as panicked as they've ever been in their life, which is really saying something. Because here they are in the middle of a storm, and four, at least four of the other men in the boat are fishermen. They spent a large portion of their adult life in boats and have encountered many storms. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, professional fishermen. And the thing that's hard to swallow in verse 23 is that during their panic, Jesus is dead asleep. So it means we've got to wrestle with verses 22 and 23. You've got to wrestle with the fact that Jesus lets the storm come. You've got to wrestle with the fact that the boats are beginning to sink all while he is asleep. So you put these two things together. Here's what you have. You have Jesus allowing them to experience chaos and he seems not to care. Has that moment ever happened in your life? Has it ever happened where Jesus allows something chaotic to happen to you and then he doesn't seem to do anything about it? If I asked you to raise your hand, I hope you would raise it. You've been there a time or two. So have I. And we got good company. I don't know if you picked up on the song that Justin just sang, but it's from Psalm 44. At the end of the psalm, where many of his lyrics come from, it reads like this. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. I think the disciples could have sung that song to Jesus when he was asleep in the boat, don't you? So if you've entered chaos and it seems like Jesus has been asleep in your life, you've got good company. You've got the disciples. You've got the psalmist. And all of God's people have wondered at some time or another why God has let them to experience the storm of their life. And they've eventually gone to God just like the disciples went to Jesus and said, don't you care that we are perishing? I'm sure B.B. Warfield, 
I'm sure he went to God and said, don't you care that I'm perishing? I'm sure that B.B. Warfield's wife went to God and said, don't you care that I'm perishing? Let me tell you the Warfield's story. B.B. Warfield might be the most famous American Presbyterian theologian of all time. He taught at Princeton for 34 years in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And he grew up about a mile away. A mile away from right here. He grew up on a cattle farm that's surrounded by a little street off Loudon called Warwick Place. It's a side street. And B.B. Warfield, he married a woman. Her name's Annie Kincaid. She was raised in Lexington, too. And they get married. They get married at the age of 25. And they move immediately to Germany for his graduate studies. And in Germany... They take many hikes, and shortly after they were married, they went on a hike. A thunderstorm came up and it overwhelmed them. Mrs. Warfield, she suffered from a nervous disorder for the remainder of her life because of that storm. Now, that must have been a doozy of a storm, but they had a different storm coming for them. Because for the next 39 years of their lives, the storm would be dealing with Mrs. Warfield's condition. She was severely inhibited from that day forward, even to the point of becoming an invalid. So can you imagine how many times in 39 years that one or both of them went to a sleeping Jesus and screamed, don't you care? When have you said that to God? Maybe it was a relapse back into addiction. Maybe it was at a doctor's office when you received a diagnosis. Maybe it was when you were in the actual storm that ravaged Western Kentucky just a few weeks ago or ravaged those you love. You asked God, don't you care? Maybe it was when you got laid off from your job. Maybe it was when you were in the middle of a peer or family relationship that would just seem so chaotic that you just sat in the middle of a storm for weeks and months and years and decades and maybe there was no resolution. I don't know. But I do know that God allowing his children to suffer and then him not being in a hurry to relieve our suffering is par for the course. It's to be expected but the good news of our text is it doesn't stop in verse 23 with the ship going down with the disciples and Jesus in it. The good news is that Jesus gets up. The disciples are able to wake him and he rebukes the storm and the storm stops and all's calm. It's in the snap of his fingers that the storm dies down. It's like Jesus is God or something. And this control over nature is something the psalmist spoke of frequently. We heard about the psalm, Psalm 44, about arise and wake, O Lord. The psalmist was in suffering. But in other times, the psalmists are calling forth God's sovereign control over all created things. Psalm 65, 7 says that God stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves. Psalm 89, 9, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 106, 9, he rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. Psalm 107, 29, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. 
Disciples, they had heard these songs before. And if they had been paying attention, they should have been able to connect the dots between the Psalms and the event that they just witnessed where Jesus rebukes the ways. When you really take these two Jesuses that we see here, you see the sleeping Jesus, verses 22 and 23, you see the rebuking Jesus in verse 24. Put them together, you see what we hear in John 16. John 16, Jesus is teaching and he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let me say that again. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Right there in that one phrase, you see that the sleeping and rebuking Jesus are not contradictions. You can't pit them against one another. I mean, look at John 16. In this world, you will have trouble. To put it differently, it's like Jesus saying, I will seem asleep to you and I will allow suffering to enter into your life. You will have trouble. But he also says, I've overcome the world. Meaning that he has rebuked more than just the winds and the waves. But he's rebuked sin and Satan and death. See, he doesn't say you will not have trouble because I have overcome the world. If he did say that, all you'd have is a rebuking Jesus. He also doesn't say you will have trouble because I have not overcome the world. If he did, then all you'd have is a sleeping Jesus. But when you summon your faith, when you summon your faith to grasp both the sleeping Jesus who allows suffering and the rebuking Jesus who's conquered death, you'll have the experience that the disciples had in verse 25. Look what verse 25 says. The disciples were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? See, they were afraid during the storm. And they're still afraid after the storm. See, what they do is they realize that those passages in the Psalms that we read earlier are about the guy standing in front of them. They're not afraid of Jesus in the sense that he's going to harm him. They're afraid in the sense that they're in awe of him. They're in all of what he's done. They're in all of who he is. Because Jesus has just proven that he's more powerful than this storm. And this overwhelms them with feelings of reverence. They stand in the presence of transcendence itself. Even more than that, they stand before the transcendent one. The one who created the cosmos. And this changed them forever. I hope you've had that kind of encounter with Jesus. If you haven't, I hope it happens right now. If you have had this kind of encounter with Jesus, I hope it happens again today. I hope that you see that Jesus knows what it's like to have God go to sleep on you. Except for Jesus, God did more than fall asleep. God rejected Jesus. He abandoned Jesus Jesus entered a storm more fierce than the one he calmed on the Sea of Galilee. He entered the storm of God's wrath on the cross. 
Why would he do it? Why would God's beloved choose such a horrible fate? The reason he chose these horrors was because Jesus in love, he took your sin and he took my sin upon himself. And because he did, you and I will never, ever have to experience the rejection of God. The worst that you and I can experience is just a sleeping Jesus. You being abandoned by God, being rejected by God, they are off the table. They're not options. That's what the cross is all about. But it gets better. It must have been pretty amazing to be there. Can you imagine being there on the boat and you get to experience this, right? To be witnesses to it. That one minute you're, shove, you're shoveling buckets of water out of the boat and the next minute it's completely calm. But I want you to imagine another scene. I want you to imagine that the body of Jesus being roused from death in the grave. You see a man who's endured the wrath of God, the storm of his fury, the mangling of his body. You see this man who's no one's ever been more dead than Jesus. And you see him come to life. And in seeing it, you see him rebuke death and tell it to go to hell. See, when you see this Jesus, the one who's not just been slept on, but been rejected by the Father, when you see this Jesus, the one who rebuked not just the storm, but death, you will be changed. And you'll be able to deal with a sleeping Jesus. You'll be able to be tender and compassionate with those who suffer. You'll become mature and tested because of your trial. Let me tell you more about B.B. Warfield and his wife. His wife never recovered. When she was at her best during these 39 years... She was able to take short, very slow walks. And Mr. Warfield would join her on these walks. One of his friends noted his gentleness was striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her. And for the next 39 years, Warfield rarely, if ever, left Princeton, New Jersey. She required constant attention and care. And later in his life, later in her life, he could not leave her side for more than two hours at a time. That gentle, tender, compassionate care showed that B.B. Warfield knew what to do with the sleeping Jesus. He was just glad that Jesus was in the boat. That was enough for him. And it can be enough for you too. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you rouse yourself and rebuke whatever pain befalls these dear people? Lord, would you rise and rebuke the evil in my life? And Lord, if you choose to keep sleeping, Lord, I pray you would help us keep hanging on. We pray these things in your name. Amen.